Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. The text for the sermon today is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4, the verses 10 through 13. Let us hear the word of God. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Thus far the reading of the word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts today. Dear friends, when someone does something nice for us, we normally would say thank you. Or we send them a thank you card or an email. And that's only proper and good manners. Well, this is precisely what the Apostle Paul does in Philippians chapter 4, the verses 10 through 13. Paul wrote these words to express his thanks to the Philippians for sending him a gift to cover his financial needs. You may remember that the Apostle was under house arrest in Rome. And as such, he was not capable of providing for himself. He was completely dependent on the charity of others. Aware of this, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus, who was a leading member of the congregation at Philippi, perhaps even an elder or the pastor, and they sent him to Rome with a gift on their behalf. And having received their gift, Paul, as he begins to bring his letter to a close, expresses his thanks. Paul's thank you note consists of three parts, and each part consists of an acknowledgement, an explanation, and a qualifier. So the first part is verses 10 to 13. The second part comes in verses 14 to 17, and the third part in verses 18 through 20. Only in verse 20, the qualifier is replaced with a doxology, where Paul writes, Now to God our, our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, with the help of the Lord, we'll consider just the first part of Paul's thank you note and the other two parts we hope to consider in the weeks to come. So the theme for the sermon is Paul's thank you note, part one. And we'll consider, first of all, the joy he expresses, secondly, the qualifications he makes, and thirdly, the secret he reveals. The Apostle Paul begins his thank you note by expressing his joy. He writes, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now, Paul used the word rejoice several times in this epistle. He uses it so often, in fact, that some commentators have suggested that joy is the theme of this letter. Well, he uses the word here again in our text. But this time, it's the last time. Paul says he rejoiced. Now, you notice that Paul did not merely rejoice, but it says here he rejoiced greatly. That means that his joy was no ordinary joy, but an extraordinary joy. He rejoiced not a little bit, but a lot. 
What is more, he rejoiced in the Lord, he says. Paul writes something similar in verse 4, only he did so in the form of a command. He writes to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Now what does that mean, to rejoice in the Lord? Well, it means simply to rejoice in union with the Lord. Paul rejoiced because of his union with Christ. You see, when a believer comes to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him as the only hope and ground of his salvation, he becomes united to him. Christ becomes his head, and he becomes part of his body. And that means whatever the believer does, he does in Christ. When he labors, he labors in Christ. When he suffers, he suffers in Christ. When he grieves, he grieves in Christ. And when he rejoices, he rejoices in Christ. And the Apostle Paul knew this. And that's why he writes in our text, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now why did Paul do this? Why did he rejoice in the Lord greatly? Well, he tells us. He said, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. The word flourished here is interesting. It's used only here in the New Testament. It's used to describe the blossoming of a tree or a flower in springtime. During the winter months, a tree is barren and dormant. But in the springtime, its buds begin to open and out pop the leaves, or in some cases, blossoms. That's exactly the idea here as well. For some time, the Philippians' care for Paul had been dormant. They hadn't sent him anything. They did initially, to be sure, and he acknowledged as much in verses 15 and 16. There Paul recalls that in the beginning of the gospel, in other words, when the gospel first took root in Philippi, when he departed from Macedonia, no church shared with him concerning giving and receiving, but only the Philippians. For, he writes, even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. But that was a long time ago. And why they had not sent him anything since then, we hope to consider in a moment. But the point is, now at long last they did. Like a tree or a flower in springtime, their care for him had flourished again at last, Paul says. And that caused Paul to rejoice greatly in the Lord. Now, why did he rejoice over this? Well, not in the first place because of the gift, but rather because of what the gift represented, what message was being communicated by the gift. As Epaphroditus unpacked his bag and laid out on the table the gifts that the Philippians had sent to him, the tiny sack of coins, this or that article of clothing, this or that clay vessel of medicine or ointment, this or that morsel of food. The apostle did not only see the gift, he saw rather a manifestation of the love of God in them. For in sending these gifts to him, they were expressing their love not only for him, but also for God and his Son Jesus Christ. They gave this gift to Paul 
because they loved Christ. And that gave Paul great joy. Now we can learn a number of lessons from this. First of all, we learn that ministers of the gospel and missionaries have financial obligations just like everyone else. Now that may seem obvious, but it's still worth stating. Ministers and missionaries also have mortgages and car loans and student loans and bills to pay. They too have to put food on the table and clothes on their backs and the backs of their families. They too have to pay for Christian education and provide their children with dental care and medicines, whatever else they need. For that reason, a church should look after its ministers and missionaries and not expect them to live hand to mouth. Now, the Philippians understood that. They understood it well. And that's why they financially supported the Apostle Paul and even counted it a privilege to do so. Secondly, we learn here that a congregation that looks after its pastors and missionaries well so that they can live without care will bring them great joy. Take as a case in point the Apostle Paul. As we've seen, Paul rejoiced greatly over the care shown to him by the congregation of Philippi. Why did he rejoice? Because of their care for him. The same is true for every minister and missionary of the gospel. If you want to bring a missionary or minister of the gospel joy, provide for his needs, and he will be joyful. Thirdly, we learn here that what should bring every minister the greatest joy is not their financial remuneration, but rather seeing Christ formed in his people. And wasn't that not true for the Apostle Paul? Why did Paul rejoice? Well, sure, he rejoiced because of the gift that they sent him. But more than that, he rejoiced because their gift was evidence of the grace of God working itself out in the hearts and lives of his people in Philippi. And that's exactly what Paul wanted to see. And this is why Paul did not begin his letter by thanking them for their gift, but waiting until the very end of the letter. You see, had Paul begun his letter by thanking the Philippians for their gift, they might have thought that that was the only thing he was interested in, was their gift. And Paul knew that. And that's why he said nothing about it until the very end of his letter. And in doing so, he makes clear that what he was really interested in was not their gift, but them. In fact, he says as much in verse 17. There Paul states that what he was looking for, what what really interested him, was, was not the gift, but the fruit, he says, that will abound to their account. Now that should be the case for every minister and every missionary of the gospel. Our primary aim as ministers must not be to make money, much less to live a life of ease but rather to see Christ formed in our people and bearing fruit to his glory. It's to that end that we are called, and it's to that end that we must expend all of our time and energy. And so Paul expressed his great joy. But then he goes on to make some important qualifications, and that brings us to our second point. Paul rejoiced over the fact that the care of the Philippians had flourished again at last. But ever concerned about being misunderstood, unless the Philippians should mistake his comment as a complaint, Paul hastens to add this qualifier. 
though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul here wants the Philippians to know that he knows that the reason why he had not received anything from them for a while was not because they did not care about him, but rather because they lacked opportunity. By which he probably meant they had a hard time finding a way to get him the funds any sooner. You have to remember that in those days, money couldn't be wired like today. Nor could they simply do an e-transfer. Money had to be personally delivered. And herein lay the difficulty. They simply could not find anyone who was able to go all the way to Rome. It was quite some distance. Now why Epaphroditus was not able to go earlier, we don't know. Maybe he was away, or maybe he was tied up with other duties. Whatever the case, they were not able to get Paul the money any sooner. And Paul understood that, and he made sure to tell them so. Now we learn here that we should always think the best of people. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. For quite some time, he had been waiting for some financial assistance from anywhere, including the Philippians. But nothing came. Now, did Paul become bitter or angry about this? Did he at any time think negatively about the Philippians for their tardiness? Did he at every time think to himself, all those Philippians, I went there and I suffered much for the sake of the gospel among them, and, and this is how they reward me? No, not at all. He simply chalked it up to their lack of opportunity. He continued to think the best of them at all times. And in so doing, Paul provides the Philippians, with a powerful illustration of what he writes in verse 8. There you remember, Paul writes, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Paul is a beautiful example of this. Rather than think negatively about the Philippians, he thought positively about them. Rather than meditate on things that were untrue, ignoble, unjust, impure, unlovely, or things that were not of good report, or things that possessed no virtue, or things that were not praiseworthy, he meditates on the opposite. He fills his mind with positive thoughts and feelings towards them. Well, what about us? How often does it not happen that Somebody does or says something, or we hear about what somebody does or says, and we immediately jump to often negative conclusions. Or we cast negative aspersions. Or we assign negative motives. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. He thought the best of the Philippians. And we need to do the same to one another, for love thinks no evil. Then you notice Paul adds yet another qualification. He writes in verses 11 and 12, Not that I speak in regard to need. Now some have misinterpreted Paul's statement to mean that he was not really grateful. So it was like he was saying, Well, thanks so much for your gift, but I don't really need it. But that's not at all what Paul means. Paul is not being ungrateful here. He's simply saying that what made him joyful was not the mitigation of his material need by the gift that they had sent by the hand of Epaphroditus. In other words, he's telling them that his joy was not related to material things. Why not? He tells us, Because I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. 
Now, the word content is only used here in the New Testament, just like the word flourish. And it means self-sufficient. Paul says he had learned to be content. He had learned to be self-sufficient in every circumstance of life. Well, you notice this is something that he had learned. The grace of contentment was not pre-installed on Paul's heart like some kind of software program preloaded into a new computer. Nor was it injected in him in a single dose as though it were a vaccine that could make us immune to a complaining spirit. No, it was learned. Paul had to learn to be content. Now, how do we explain this? Who taught him this? How did he learn this? Well, God taught him this, and he taught him this in the classroom of his providence. And Paul expands on this in verse 12. He writes there, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, if you look at this verse carefully, you'll notice that Paul here presents three contrasts. First of all, he says, I know how to be abased, and then the contrast, and I know how to abound. Then he says, I have learned both to be full, and then he says, and to be hungry. And then thirdly, he says, I have learned both to abound, and then he says, and to suffer need. Now, by means of all three sets of extremes, all of which he experienced himself, Paul had learned to be content. Now, significantly, the Greek word translated as learned in verse 12 is a different word than the word used in verse 11, which is also translated as learned. In verse 11, the word means to learn in the sense of gaining knowledge or some kind of skill. But in verse 12, the word means to learn a mystery or a secret. Now, this word was often used in the so-called mystery religions that were widely practiced by the Romans in the first century A.D., According to the teachers of these religions, by following their teachings, one could become privy to things that were hitherto known only by the gods. But Paul puts his own twist on this word. He's saying, I learned contentment not by following the teachings and engaging in the rituals of the mystery religions, but rather by God himself in the ordinary ups and downs and triumphs and trials of life. Now, needless to say, this is quite a statement. Remember, Paul was under house arrest in Rome, chained day and night to a Roman soldier, awaiting the outcome of his trial, which could very well lead to his death. He had very little to live on. He had hardly any income. He had just the basic necessities of life. And yet, the Apostle Paul was content. Now, how many of us can say the same? What have you learned in the school of God's providence? Have you learned this vital lesson? Have you learned to be content in whatever state you are? Sadly, many Christians today are not content, certainly not in the Western world. Some are not content with their material possessions, the house they live in or the car they drive or the clothes they wear. Some are not content with their so-called lot in life, 
They're not content to be single. They're not content to be childless. They're not content to be a widow or a widower. They're not content with being sick. They're not content with their job or their income or their lack of promotion. And to be sure, some of these things can be very painful. And nowhere does God say we have to live the crosses that we have to bear and the suffering that we have to endure. And Job didn't either. But he does command us to be content, to trust in his fatherly provision and care. Now, is that true for you today? Are you content with what the Lord has given you, including the circumstances of your life? As we've already observed, such a grace does not drop out of the sky. It's learned. It is learned in the ups and downs and the triumphs and trials of life. And the question is, have you learned it? Are you content with God's ways and his fatherly provision, even when it is not to your liking? So we see then that Paul makes an important qualification. Then he goes on to reveal a valuable secret. And that brings us to our third and final point. Paul has just declared that he has learned to be content in all circumstances. He writes, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then to summarize, he makes this declaration, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You notice the verb that Paul uses here. He says, I can do. The Greek word here means I have the capability or the wherewithal to perform a certain task or function. Notice, too, the object of the verb, all things. That's very comprehensive. Nothing is excluded from this phrase. Now, does this mean that Paul could release himself from prison? Does it mean that, like Superman, he could leap over a tall building in a single bound? No, it doesn't mean any of those things. It simply means that he was able to do everything that God had called him to do. If God had called him to preach, he could do that. If God had called him to suffer or even to die, he could do that too. Yes, whatever God had called him to do, he could do. Now, was Paul boasting here? Not at all. For you notice the modifier of the verb. He adds, through Christ, who strengthens me. Paul here declares that he was not able to do all things himself, for he was weak and frail and sinful. He can only do those things through Christ who strengthens him. And what was true for the Apostle Paul is true for every believer. We don't know what God has in store for us. It may be health, but it may also be sickness. We may lose a loved one. We may suffer a financial setback. We may suffer a trial in our family, with our kids, in our marriage. We don't know. We don't know the future. Our times are in God's hands. But God knows. And this much we do know, that when we are in Christ, we can and will endure it and even overcome. For it is Christ who strengthens us.
Now, someone says, will he do that? Yes, I know he's able, but will he? Yes, he will. And how do I know that? Because Jesus himself was strengthened. You may remember the night before he was crucified, how Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times, with great drops of blood streaming from his forehead, he prayed to his Father that if it be possible, to please let the cup of his suffering pass from him. But as we know, it was not possible. Christ had to drink that cup to the last bitter dregs. It was the only way to save his people from their sins. And he asked his three most faithful disciples and friends to pray with him. And they did, for a while. But then they all fell asleep. Not once, not twice but three times. And in the end, utterly exhausted, we read in the Gospels that in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and compassion, God the Father, understanding the limitations of his Son and his human nature, sent an angel to strengthen him. And he was strengthened. And God gave him just enough strength to endure the horrors that lay before him. His arrest, his trial, the beatings, the flogging, and ultimately, his crucifixion. You see, Jesus understood the importance and the necessity of strengthening. He experienced these things himself. He knows what it is to be weak and to be frail. And he is willing and able to strengthen each one of his children before, during, and even after the trials that they are made to endure. Therefore, child of God, do not be afraid. There is an inexhaustible supply of strength in Jesus Christ. Look to him, therefore, in all of your trials and all of your afflictions, and you will be able to say with the apostle, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by, or if you have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. That's www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us, To offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, 
you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go right to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. For that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing, living member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.